For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, try to imagine a basketball team that has too many superstars. You know, a team where everybody thinks I should be the star, I should take the shots, I should have the biggest contract, the offense should revolve around me. Can you imagine a team like that? A team like that would be running into some problems. You know, instead of being able to work together to defeat the opponent, they'd be working against one another, breaking off into factions, fighting against one another instead of remembering who the real opponent is. A team like that would have to make some changes if they were going to start winning some ball games. And the reason I bring this up is because the church in Corinth, this ancient Greek city from 2,000 years ago, was having similar problems. They were having a really hard time working together as a team. Instead of remembering who they were and each one playing their part, Instead of that, they were splintering off into these factions. They were proud. They were showing off. They were trying to get attention. They were trying to matter at other people's expense instead of allowing God to give them value and define who they really are. And so we've been studying this letter to the Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul, the guy who had started this Christian group, this church here. And what we've seen is he's really had to go back to square one and lay the foundation. He's got, he had to remind them who they are. He says, when you became a Christian, you are a new creation, is a phrase he'll, he'll write in the second letter to them. He says, things changed about you significantly. He says, your whole life, here was you. We saw this a couple weeks ago. You were living, but you had this, this vacant, this aching need for God, this God-shaped hole, this longing for significance, for relationship, for satisfaction, for fulfillment, and you couldn't find it. And he says what God did is he sent his son to die on the cross to bridge the gap between him and you so you could become spiritually alive. And no longer are you this empty shell of a, a broken person, but now he says, we have received God's spirit we saw in chapter two. And so now instead of that hole, God's spirit comes and he lives inside of you. And we saw all this and you should go back and listen to these teachings if you missed them because it's all built. And some of you tonight, you're here and you're, you're like this person without the spirit. You, you're, you're not spiritually alive and you're gonna remain frustrated and alone ultimately and fundamentally until you come into a relationship with Christ. That's a choice. You don't have to be a really, really good person or anything like that. All you have to do is admit you need his forgiveness. And God forgives you and gives you his spirit. So that's one aspect of this new creation. But something else very significant happened to you. It's not just that God places his spirit into you. No, there's a whole other take on this. So you can imagine, you've got to shrink down for this analogy here, okay? So here's you, all right? And what he says in 130 is God has united you with Christ Jesus. And so he's taken you, and not only has he put Christ into you, but somehow he connects you with Christ. He places you into Christ, is the imagery here. Almost like putting on a, 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 a costume or something. And so if this is Jesus, the, the notion here is this, right? And so now when God looks at you, he doesn't see the person you were but he sees you like he sees his son. You're now his child. You're now, you now have the, the perfection of Christ. 
Why is he going here? It's not just because it's true, but because this is the answer to their problems of disunity as well. They, if they could understand who they really are, because the thing is, you have been connected to Christ. He's put his spirit in you. You're connected to him, but you're not the only one. And so you can sort of imagine, you know, person after person flying into Christ, being connected to him. And what do you get? You get this situation where you're not the only one in there. And so now when he looks at you, he sees his son, but also when he looks at whole Christian groups, he sees a oneness there because there's this connection with Jesus. And so, as he says in another one of his letters, we are, we are part of Christ and individually members of one another. We're connected to each other in this new and real and permanent way. That's the truest thing about you. Now, a lot, a lot of Christians don't live this out. But this is, this is part of God's cure for loneliness. It's connecting you not just to him, but to other people at a spiritual level. It's very cool. And so this is why it's so tragic that instead of viewing themselves as one, they're fighting with one another, they're splintering off into factions, they're competing with one another. And this is why in chapter one, you know, he says you're connected to Christ and each other. In chapter one, the way he starts this letter, he says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus, to live in harmony with each other. No, let there be no divisions in the church. The church is just the Bible's term for Christian community. It's not a church building. It's a, it's a relational community. He says, let there be no divisions in that community. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. And so there's all this unity language, harmony, united, oneness. Not groupthink, but working together like players on a team striving toward a common goal instead of fighting against one another. He says... You know, some members of Chloe's household told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Paul's the guy writing the letter. Paul's the guy that was the first one to come here and tell them about Jesus. He was there for a year and a half, and then he had to leave. And then he says, so some people apparently were kind of taking the sense of superiority that, well, I'm really a disciple of Paul's. And he says, but some of you are saying, I follow Apollos. Apollos, a, a, a teacher, a powerful teacher, a powerful speaker. He's from Alexandria. Looks like he was trained in the very sophisticated Greek rhetoric, something that these guys kind of took pride in their speaking ability, and Apollos kind of talked like some of them. And they're like, well, I follow Apollos, not that yokel Paul who couldn't even speak like a philosopher. And others were like, well, I follow Peter. Couldn't get much more famous than Peter in the early church. He was, a, he was personally discipled by Jesus, personally commissioned as kind of a first among equals of the early apostles. And apparently he had also gone to Corinth and spent some time teaching them, trying to help this group get established, trying to help them work out some of these problems. Still others were like, oh, you're so fixated on human leaders. I follow only Christ. And so there's kind of this, oh, people don't matter. It's really Jesus and me. And so there was all these factions. And so really, Paul says, has Christ been divided into factions? You guys are one. And what you're doing, it's like you're, you're slicing up the body of Christ. He says, was I, Paul, crucified for you? Why are you so focused on me? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. You were, you were connected to Christ when you became a believer. 
And so this problem of divisions, it's a serious problem that they were having. And so one, one of the great contributions of this letter to the Corinthians is its contribution to our understanding of what it means to be part of Christian community. It's got some of the most profound passages in Scripture on this subject and some of the most profound passages on what it means to love. And so what he does in this letter is he gives several different pictures of the church. Last time we saw this notion of Christian community is like a family. You know, he's calling them brothers and sisters. And he also says, you know, when I came there, these, all these new baby Christians were born. And, you know, I was there. I was more mature. I was trying to help, to help the little kids grow up. And he says, the problem is some of you haven't grown up yet. You're teenagers and you're still acting like babies. And so, you know, one of the things in a family, you're supposed to grow up and then help other people grow up too. So that's one of these pictures. Tonight, we're going to see two more pictures of this Christian community that Paul paints for us. And the first one, we'll pick up in chapter 3 where we left off last time. And he says, you guys, you're God's field. You're like a field. And so we're going to have a lot of visuals tonight, these pictures. So imagine a field, a plot of land here, God's field. And you know, in a field you've got things growing, right? This is a farming analogy. I know a lot of us were not raised on farms, like I was not raised on a farm. Uh, I've seen them in movies, though. I've driven by them <laughs> when I drive anywhere in Ohio. <laughs> and, you know, on a farm, you've got the crops, but you've also got the farmers, okay? So you have these people working in the field, going around, trying to produce a harvest. This is farm clip art, <laughs> the first three hits I got. <laughs> And what Paul says is this, in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9, he says, what is Apollos and what is Paul? He's back to that discussion of these, these different leaders that had an impact in their lives. He says, we're servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. We're just farmers. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Farmers can't make things grow. You ever try to make a plant grow faster than it's supposed to? You can't make it do it. You can yell at it, you stupid plant, come on! It doesn't do any good. There's only so much you can do. God is the one who causes the growth. He says, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. Probably talking about the unity, he and Apollos, he's like, Apollos and I are not divided, even if you guys are. Maybe it's also saying, you know, we do play a part, right? It's not that they did nothing. It's not like the, the Corinthian church would have happened no matter what Paul or Apollos did. But he says, and he says, each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So there's rewards for good farmers. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field is how he sums up this little discussion here. So we want to think about this. So he says, we are God's fellow workers. What are the fellow workers? These are Christian workers building up the church at Corinth. So you know, you might have Paul and Apollos and Peter. They all played a role. He also says, you're God's field. And so these would be the Christians in the Corinthian church. They're still growing up. Now, these, these pictures of the church, they, they do break down at a certain point. Like in our picture, you know, plants can grow into farmers, right? So you go poof, and all of a sudden... What was two stalks of grain before, now you've got two more workers for the harvest. That's the goal of this, all right? So there's, it doesn't exactly fit, but it's, you, you kind of see the different pictures that he's painting here. 
He wants the Corinthians to grow up into good farmers. Farmers have an important role in a harvest, but God's role is even more important. It's one of the main points of this farming metaphor. Farmers have a role. It's hard work. It's patient work, but God is ultimately the one who causes the growth. In fact, it'd be nice to say, well, the first part of this passage is about our part, but the second part is about God's part. But in fact, every single statement has intertwined our part and God's part. Look back through this again with me. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? We're servants through whom you believe. So we did something significant, but the Lord is the one that gave the opportunities to each one. So our part, God's part. I planted, Apollos watered, our part. God was causing the growth, God's part. Watering, planting, what does that mean? Planting, this would refer to the Paul's initial actions of telling people about Jesus here in, in this city. It was originally planting the seed, sharing with them about Christ. Very significant, very important part of spiritual farming. This is how people come to li- come gain spiritual life in the first place. He says, Apollos water. Now, Paul did some of this too, but Apollos did more of this apparently. This would be like caring for Christians and helping them grow. So there's already a plant growing there, but plants, they need some help a lot of times. If you want to reap a maximum harvest. You know, this would be doing life together. I have God's spirit. If I'm a believer, you have God's spirit. And so I, I can maybe receive some insights, some direction, something from God that I can share with you. When the field comes together, when the Christian community comes together, if you have enough people that have God's spirit, then there's a sharing that takes place and there's a supplying of one another's needs. Might teach someone something and you know, it's not, it could just be sharing something you've learned, sharing something that God's been showing you that can be used to build other people up. We might pray for the person. We might pray with the person. We might say, I don't know, I don't know how to help you, but can we pray together right now? And you pray. And they can walk away feeling like, okay, I can make it. I can make it through another week here. This is hard. Encouraging one another. You know, sometimes encouragement is positive. Sometimes it's sort of a a little bit of a stronger, come on, you got to keep going here. Like the coach at halftime trying to urge the players, the teammates, urging one another on and not to quit got to keep playing hard. But, you know, whatever it is, it's trying, to, it's trying to build up the field. It's trying to nurture the other plants along, and that's, that's what God, that's what Apollos did a lot of here. That was his primary role, whereas Paul did kind of planting, he, was, he did some watering too, for sure. Anyway, he says, neither the once nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. There's our part and God's part there. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So God, one of, one of God's parts in all this is offering up rewards for good farmers. It's like the Farmer of the Year Award or whatever. You'd be like, yeah, I'm going to win that. We will talk about rewards later. But the basic idea is that God rewards good farming. And then he, again, says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. So there's this farming metaphor. And so, you know, this notion, I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. This may be, it's maybe a little bit lost on those of us that grew up as city dwellers or suburb dwellers. And so, um, 
I had to teach this passage a couple of years back in the summer, and um, I thought, you know, I've never lived on a farm. I'm going to do a little experiment and try out some of these um, principles here and see what I find. And so here was my experiment. It had to do with planting, watering, and growth. Step one, get four pots and some dirt. Step two, buy some sunflower seeds. I just picked those because I, I always thought those were pretty cool plants. Step three, plant sunflowers in pots. Step four, take lots of pictures and see what happens. <laughs> and the basic premise here is of these, I had four pots. One I was just going to plant but not water. The other I was just going to water but not plant. <laughs> For another one, I wasn't going to plant or water. And the final one, I thought I would do some watering and planting and, and see a little scientific method here. <laughs> so here I am with my sunflower seeds. Some farmers are very serious. This is American Gothic here. Some farmers are happy. Some are tough. And some farmers, they just look good. <laughs> So pot number one, planted, no, watered, no, growth. Well, here we are eight days in. You can see it's labeled with neither. <laughs> in fact, that's how it looked on day one. Day 22, we were not really seeing too many changes here. <laughs> day 25, still not looking too good. Day, finally, four weeks in, this is a four-week experiment. This is how it looked. And um, growth, no. Observations. God didn't cause any growth. Why, God, why aren't you doing anything here? I thought God was the one who causes the growth. Yeah, he does. But I didn't do my part either. And that's what we'll find if we want to get into spiritual farming. There's a part that you need to play, and it's very significant, and not, not all growth turns out the same. And part of it, has to do with our part. Lesson, we can't sit around doing nothing and expect God to work. Yeah, some of us might be doing that. We gotta think, what is my part? What is the action step God wants me to take? All right, what about pot number two? This one, still no seeds in this. I did water it a lot. <laughs> Day eight, we start to see a few things coming up. Day 22, there is a lot of green in this pot. Day 25, really looking good and green. And day 27, at the end of this experiment, the pot was just full of growth of weeds. No sunflower seeds came up in this one. Growth, yes. Good growth, no. <laughs> Observation. I wasted a lot of effort in water on this pot. <laughs> These things are heavy. <laughs> if you want to see a harvest, you've got to try some planting. Otherwise, you might find some very strange things start to grow up in your home group. If you're not getting out there, if you're just inward focused, if you're just focused on each other, some churches, they're just, they're just focused on each other. And there's no outward orientation. It should be a welcoming place. We should be an outreaching place, a place that, that turns our attention not just to loving one another, but loving other people too. Tell them about Christ. 
So if you find weird stuff growing up, maybe, maybe you should think about planting some good seed. Pot number three, this one, I planted five seeds. I did not water this pot. This was the most interesting pot by far, in my opinion. Day A, look at what came up out of the ground. See this right here? In fact, if you zoom in, the seed <laughs> was still <laughs> stuck to the little things there. But I didn't pull it off, okay? Because I'm not doing any, I'm not giving this plant any help. Day 21, I was actually starting to get pretty worried because the plant in pot three that I was not watering was actually beating pot number four and threatening to ruin my entire teaching. <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do. I was sort of preparing for uh, to go another direction. God works in mysterious ways. <laughs> Apparently, sunflower seeds are like incredibly, sunflowers are incredibly drought resistant. And so I picked like not a very good one for this experiment where I'm not going to water. But then something glorious happened overnight before day 22. I came out and my big bushy plant looked like this because a rabbit came and ate my plant. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> and so day 25, it looked basically the same. Day 27, there's really no progress. And so there was growth. Um, was it maximum growth? No. The answer was no. Not maximum growth. There could have been better growth. In fact, part of what it shows is watering isn't just watering. There's a lot to be taken care of, and that plant needed some protection. It needed little caves around it to keep the bunnies from getting it, which you know if you try to grow plants. Sometimes the critters eat them. Observation number one, this plant would have probably done better with some attention from me. Some protection, perhaps. That's one thing we can do for one another. We can watch each other's backs. We can look out for one another. And so, one lesson from this, are there people in your group who might flourish with some help from you? Have you thought about that, about the role you can play instead of wondering who's going to meet my needs? I think a related lesson would be, are you willing to stop being autonomous and start receiving help from other people? Some of us, we have this problem. We're too autonomous. We won't take anything from anyone. You're not an island. You're not, you're not, you know, this lone ranger. We need each other. We're, we're connected to each other in very real ways. Observation number two is that the growth force is powerful. Even without help from me, I was shocked to see this plant coming up on its own. And so a lesson I took from that is you might find God causing growth in spite of your best attempts to mess things up. Thank God he does that. It's not all up to us. He's interested in getting his word out there. He's interested in getting his love out there. There's people who he is reaching out to, who he's calling, who he's, he's drawing in. And um, he's going to do some things in spite of us a lot of times. All right, pot number four. Planted and watered. Let's see what happened. Again, day eight, it really was not looking any, any different from pot number three. In fact, for the first three or four days, all four pots looked exactly the same. But you can see this little guy coming up here. 
a little growth. Day 22, this is <laughs> after the rabbit incident. <laughs> I went ahead and protected the other one with a uh, maximum security system. Day 25, look how fast it's growing. It nearly doubled in size from day 22. Oh, and look at what, look, look in this little, little guy there. I planted five seeds. One came up on day seven or eight. The other one was day 24, a late bloomer. How about that? Huh, it's a lot littler than that one, but um, you can't really compare the growth. It'll get there. Different plants grow at different times. And on day 27, you just see, this, is, this sunflower is coming along real well. Growth, yeah. Good growth here. So a couple observations. One is after four days, all four pots looked the same. And the difference really grew over time. And I think a lesson there is that growth takes time and there are no shortcuts. Things are gonna grow at the rate where they're gonna grow. And you can slow down growth through neglect and other things, but um, you, can't, you can't speed it up faster than it's gonna grow. I did the same stuff for those seeds. They were in the same pot in the same dirt, dug out of the same place in my yard, and yet one grew faster than the other. It means patience and consistency. It also means, Corinthians, stop comparing yourselves to one another Stop trying to measure up how my growth compares to yours. How about you focus on trying to help other people in their growth? Get the focus off yourself. Observation number two, all five seeds looked the same when I put them in the ground. But only two sprouted. One on day five and one on day 24. Again, you can't, there's only so much we can tell. We need to be faithful with what God has called us to do. Be faithful, let God worry about the results. As it says in Zechariah, who has despised the day of small things? Since there's times where it doesn't really look like God's doing anything, we need, to be, we, need to, we need to show up for work that day. If the farmer only shows up when he sees a harvest, he's never gonna get a harvest. No, it's in season and out of season, it says in 2 Timothy 4. That's, that's when we need to preach the word. That's when we need to show up for work, no matter what season it is. There's stuff to be done. And finally, sunflowers yield a lot more seeds than you plant. I didn't see these things all the way through to the end, but here's a picture of me next to a sunflower. <laughs> Actually, it's not me, but that is a real sunflower. In fact, the world record sunflower, 30 feet tall. But this is a pretty average height here for these things. Incredibly tall, they're really remarkable. How many seeds do you get from one sunflower? Any guesses? One million, one million. it's a little high. <laughs> Eventually though, you could. 800 to 2,000 seeds from a single sunflower, from that one seed. So you know, three seeds are gonna, in my example, three seeds yield zero. Two seeds yield 1,600 to 4,000. And that's what Jesus said too. He said, you know, the seed that falls in the good soil, you're not gonna believe the crop that thing can bring forth. And each of these seeds can be planted for another plant. It's really a neat image here. It's a cool image of 
Christian community that he's, he's got here, one of farming. A lot won't respond, others will fizzle out, but some will produce a massive harvest. In fact, God, he'll show you enough of the harvest to keep you going, but he will hide a lot of it from you. He knows how proud we get. And it's really not till all the seeds that have fallen from all the plants that sprung from all the seeds we sowed, not until that calculation is done at the end when that reward is figured. It's really not till then that we can truly even have a, a glimpse as to what God is doing here through us. So where do you fit into God's field? Let's apply this before we move on to the second picture. Some of you aren't even plants. You know, you're just sitting there. You're just dead soil. And there's all this life all around you. And if you're feeling like that person from a couple weeks ago that just doesn't get it, maybe it's because you don't have God's spirit. You know, you got you to get, fi- get into the game here. Get into the field. Get some life. Get growing. God wants to do this for you. He wants to give you this new life. He wants to give you his spirit. And he wants to go on and give you a role in the field. You know, some of you are plants... And you need to tell God you want to be workers. God, he says, Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more laborers into his harvest. God is the Lord of the harvest. He says, pray that he would send more laborers because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He needs you to get out there. And so instead of just taking and sitting there, part of your, the stagnation in your growth might be I bet there's a good chance it's because you're not turning your attention out to others and thinking, how can I grab a rake? How can I grab a watering can? How can I play a role in this other person's life? And finally, if you're a worker in the field, hang in there no matter what. The Bible promises in season and out of season, it says no matter what, you gotta, you gotta be faithful. That's what God wants. And so farming, it's hard work, it's getting up early, it's late nights, it's long seasons. There's whole, there's most of the year, there's no harvest coming up. The majority of the year, you can't even see anything growing up out of the ground. There's reversals, there's a lot out of your control. But what you need to do is focus on the things that are in your control. Tell the Lord the harvest, ask him for the patience, for the endurance to hang in there and keep putting one foot in front of the other. So that's the field. You're God's fellow workers. You're God's field. And then he changes the image. We have the family and the field. And then he says, you're God's building. Kind of an abrupt change of metaphor. You're God's building. So instead of the field, now we see an ancient wall with stones. Each stone hand-hewn from rock from rocks of different size, different properties, cut just right to fit into just the right place in the wall by a master builder. And he says, you guys are God's building. So we're like uh, something that fits together and is being built up. Paul says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a master builder. Yeah, it may be sort of like the planting imagery. He says, when I was there, I put the foundation down. You've got to have a good foundation if you're going to have a good building. 
He said, someone else is building on it. Maybe that's like the watering. You know, I, I got it started. And then I built some things. But, you know, b- back in this time here, putting up a building, it wasn't just something that you did over the summer from April to October. These building projects, they would take decades. You have buildings in Paul's day that, you know, my great-grandpa started building this, and then I was building this with him, and now my kids are here building it with me, and my, you know, great-grandpa has long since passed away. You've got multi-generational building projects, and Paul is like, that's kind of what you guys are. I tagged out, somebody else tagged in, each one of you guys, you got your trowel and your, you know, your chisel, and you're, you're, fitting, you're fitting this thing together. Each one should build with care. If you're going to build, you better be careful. A wall that's a little bit crooked at the bottom, a wall without foundation is doomed. But a wall that's a little crooked at the bottom, as you stack blocks on that, on top of that, on top of that, you guys ever played Jenga? Man, it starts getting pretty wobbly at a certain point <laughs> as you start getting those bricks put in there the wrong way. So he says, you've got to be careful how you're building here. You know, he's like, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid. What is that foundation? Well, that's Jesus Christ. You know, it's the cross of Christ. It's the message about Christ. It's the teachings of Christ. He says, this is the foundation. We have these preserved today for us in the scriptures. That's why we show up and we teach the scriptures here at these meetings. It's because this is our foundation. This is our starting point. And so we have the truth of God, the work of Christ. This is the foundation. And then we're building upon that. We're building carefully. If anyone builds on this foundation using a variety of building materials, some good, gold, silver, costly stones, some not so durable, wood, hay, straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. What is this day? It's the day when our work is evaluated. It's the day when Jesus Christ comes back, which he promises that he's going to do. And he says, when I come back, I'm going to evaluate what you've done. The quality of your work will be revealed with fire. And fire will test the quality of each person's work. And so you can sort of imagine, it's like you're like, look what I built. And so Christ walks up and he just throws the torch on there. And he just waits for the fire to die out. And he says, okay, let's see what's left. And so the stuff that's not so good, thank God that all gets burned off. The stuff that's good, well, that's the part that remains. And he says, all right, let's, let's evaluate your work. These are the rewards that we were talking about, the rewards under the farming, and now the rewards here for the building. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. Yeah, in fact, in ancient times, Only the very expensive, maybe the government buildings, the temples would be built out of stone and out of precious precious stones and um, the gold and the silver, those sorts of things. And so when the fire would rip through, most most of the cities would be built out of wood and hay and straw. And so all that stuff would just burn to the ground. And then when the fire would finally die down, all you would see left are these rock solid stone structures that would look kind of like this. 
And he says, let's see what's left when the end comes. You know, the idea of rewards from God, some people don't, it's a little hard to understand. It's hard to grasp this. C.S. Lewis, I think, has some pretty good comments in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, nothing is so obvious in a child as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised by his parents or teacher. To have the satisfaction of having pleased those whom he has rightly loved and respected. You ever see a child beam when they've done something that they get praised for? And that, he says, is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when we, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, at last learn that we have pleased him whom we were created to please. You were created by God. You can please your creator, the mighty one. We will be free from the miserable illusion that it was our doing. There'll be no taint of prideful self-approval as we will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made us to be. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not really pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son, it seems impossible. A weight of glory which our thoughts can barely sustain, but so it is. It's hard to imagine a, a, a not having this prideful element in us to be just simply innocently overjoyed that God is praising me even though I don't deserve it, to be happy when the other person gets maybe more praise than me. It's hard to imagine a world without jealousy and yet that's the world under which rewards will be doled out. When the rest of the stuff is removed and God says, well done, good and faithful servant. To stand there before Christ, you can see the holes in his wrists and his, his ankles. You can see the marks of his suffering. It says he looks like a lamb that was slain. And for him to say, thank you so much for that thing you did, for telling that person about me, for encouraging that person when they really needed it. Eternity will not be the same because of what you have done. Well done, good and faithful servant. And you think to yourself, but there's so much I didn't do right. But that's not what he's focused on. He's focused on the part that you did. And he died for all the other parts. The reward. A couple verses later, he says, wait till the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Yeah, that's the thing. A lot of the competitive, the things we did out of jealousy, the things we did to show off, the things we did out of prideful motives, those sorts of motives of men's hearts, those are going to get exposed. I think that's going to be some of the works that are going to burn off. There's no room for competitiveness. There's no room for, you know, trying to build a name for myself because I'm so awesome at serving God. It's like the Corinthians where they'd taken the same attitudes they had in the world and they brought them right into Christian community. And they were like, look at me and look how great I am and look at what I did and look at how much good I'm doing. No, this is the last shall be first. That's the wisdom of God. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. Yet he will be saved even though as only as one escaping through the flames. Yeah, it's not talking about going to hell, not the flames of hell. This is 
genuine Christians who spent their whole lives building something of only temporary value. It'll be kind of a sad day, I think. I, it's hard to imagine how God is gonna comfort that sorrow, but to think I spent my whole life building this and I'm watching it burn down. There's no fire insurance, there's no, nothing here. It's, it's gone, I had my chance and I blew it. I, I hope that none of you will experience that painful regret. Of course, it's a regret that will still be comforted by God and he'll wipe away every tear and he'll say, come on in anyway, my son still died for you. Yeah, you wasted your life, but I, I guess he knew you were gonna do that anyway. You missed opportunities, but that doesn't make you any less my son or daughter. Come on in. It's very strange, this whole notion. And then he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. So we're not just any building. We're kind of like the temple building, a very special building that carried very special significance right up until the time that Jesus died on the cross. A, a, a concept that stood for 1,500 years in the Old Testament that pointed ahead to what Christ would do. You know, this temple, this is, in fact, the stones here in this picture, these are... Um, some of the few remaining parts of the foundation wall of the, the temple from the time of Christ. This is a close-up of those. This is what that temple at the time of Christ would have looked like. These stones are kind of from the back left corner there, the western wall. And what he says is, you guys are now God's temple. So in the, in the Old Testament, God had the tabernacle, which was a tent version of what became to be the temple. And that was symbolically where God was, and that's where people came to offer their sacrifices. And God says, no more temples. Jesus says, no more temples. Jesus says, I'm the new temple. I'm the place where God is, where God really is. And now he says, you guys are the temple. And so the temple, it doesn't look like this. In fact, the church isn't even a building. A lot of people think of going to church as it's like this building with stained glass and a steeple. That's not what it is. The church is a spiritual community that is completely unrelated to the physical structure where they're meeting at any given time. And so instead of looking like this, it might look something more like this. This is my home church from uh, this past summer, a trip we took to the lake. And what he says is God's spirit dwells in your midst. And so what you have is you have all these people and you know the Holy Spirit is right there. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is right there. And the Holy Spirit is there. <laughs> and here. And here. This one's special here. This is my wife. <laughs> she should be here getting embarrassed right now but she's home with my sick daughter. <laughs> But you have the Holy Spirit in all of these different people and it's pretty amazing when that many people that have the Holy Spirit get together because what he says is you all are God's temple. This is plural you, singular temple. And so in one sense, each Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but in another sense, the gathering, the group 
is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And pretty incredible things happen when the building, when the temple gets together like this. This is where lives begin to change. This is where God's love radiates out to a world that needs it. Of course, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy or corrupt that person. I think the word corrupt is actually a better translation here. That's how Paul uses it elsewhere in this letter. I think the concept here is it's not that God is going to send you to hell if you're, if you're just, you can't destroy the temple, but what you can do is what these Corinthians were doing and they were dividing the temple and they were corrupting the unity. And God says, if you divide my church, my building, I'm going to be very unhappy about that. He says, you go around corrupting the temple. I am going to corrupt you, God says. There's a promise you can take home if you're a little devotional. (laughs) And um, you don't want to be on the wrong side of this one right here. God thinks it is a very serious offense when someone divides Christian community. And in fact, if you look at the lives of people that, have, that, that go around trying to divide the body of Christ, which is another, ter- another picture we'll see later in Corinthians. If you look at people that go around trying to divide the, the field and the building, uh, their lives get real miserable. They completely fall apart. And I think that's the fulfillment of this verse right here. It's not something we do to people. It's just something that happens. And that's what God says here. God will corrupt that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. He concludes here. So let's just apply these pictures. We've seen the family, we've seen the field, we've seen the building. We're gonna see more later in Corinthians. What's going on here? The point is that God is offering you the opportunity to be part of something bigger than just you. This is the key to happiness and joy. This is the key to meaningfulness. This is the key to purpose. Is your life is not just about you and trying to feel good and do what I want to do, but it's learning to be part of something bigger. He gives you a place in the family. He gives you a spot in the harvest. He gives you a role to play in this building project that will go on for all eternity. He offers eternal rewards from him, also from the people whose lives you'll impact just to to see their very presence in heaven, to see what they're becoming. This is so fulfilling to watch people go from not even believers in Christ to baby believers, to growing up, to maturing, to becoming strong and tough and their life is coming together and their relationships are coming together. And now, they're, look, they're, 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 they're married and they're having a successful marriage which they never had growing up from their parents. And if God wills, look, they've, they've got children. And they're, they're loving other people and their home is becoming a place where people can come and where they're safe, where they experience love, where their lives begin to change too, warmed by the love of God. This is what you get to see. It's that feeling parents get watching their kids grow up. It's so proud, so much joy. I can't believe I had any role in this. This is, this is what we get to experience in the body of Christ, in the building, in the field. Will you play your part on the team? 
We work together as part of the team. That's what God wants. That's what God is behind. He's offering you a spot to join the team and to play a role. That, 1 Corinthians 3, working together. All right, let's pray. Really cool pictures here, Lord. This is um, such a rich life you've given us and, and these different pictures of the family and the field and the building. These are really cool to know that you want us to be part of something big, something that is going to last forever. So I pray for people here who, who are not part of your family, who are not part of your field, who are not part of the, the, the building project. I pray that they would um, come to faith in Christ and receive your spirit and be connected to him and also be connected to other people. And I pray too, God, for those of us who are part of these things, I pray that we would take seriously the, the role that you offer us. I pray we would not pass up this opportunity. And I pray that one day, in spite of, in spite of all of our mistakes, that we would get to stand there and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant, and see what you did with the little bit that we offered up to you. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.